where I play, as long as I go number one in the draft. From the Erie Otters, Connor McDavid. From the London Knights, Mitch Marner. From the Western Hockey League's Brandon Wheat Kings, Nolan Patrick. This is Tracking the Draft with Craig Button. He checks an enormous amount of boxes. Nobody in this draft did more with less. I absolutely love him. It's not his skills that anybody's concerned about. It's that playing attitude. And quite frankly, it's really poor. Speeding towards the future of the NHL. From the U.S. Development Program, Jacob Truba. From Faryastad of the Swedish Elite League, Jonas Brodin. From the Boston U Terriers, Brady Kachuk. He could play in the NHL next year. He's one of those guys. Here's your host, Dean Millard. Hello there and welcome to episode 15 of Tracking the Draft with Craig Button. The director of scouting for TSN will be along shortly. This is our final episode of season one, but have no fear. Season two will be here next week Uh, the stars of tomorrow are discovered here and today we are going to discuss what craig and other scouts look for in players we're also going to do some story time so it's scouting tips and story time on craig's council this week and craig joins us on the uffs hotline check it out at www.uffsports.com you can become a scout and track the same players that Craig Button does. You can also be a GM if uh, there are some owners that are looking for some, and I think there are, and there's a couple of franchises that just might be for sale, plus a 30-second franchise, just like the Kraken in the NHL, will be auctioned off in the Ultimate Fantasy Hockey League. You own the game in this format, so get in the game. All right, just before we bring in Craig, a little bit of news from the junior hockey world. The WHL is going to try and start their season on January 9th of 2021. So players will uh, report to their teams after what would be the Christmas break. They will only play in regions. So the U.S. teams will stay in that region and play. The B.C. division will stay in B.C., Alberta in the central will play each other. And then uh, the Saskatchewan and two Manitoba teams will face off against each other. And then I don't know what's going to happen with playoffs. I don't know what's going to happen with fans, uh, but they obviously are working with um, officials, uh, medical officials on what's going on. And they will be flexible if things uh, don't go well, like what's happening in Quebec. COVID-19 has the QMJHL halting play in Quebec, but not the maritime bubble until at least October 28th. Moncton can't play because of the New Brunswick restrictions. Six of 12 teams in Quebec were in red zone with high COVID numbers, and two teams had uh, a fair number of cases. So that has been pushed back, and and I thought it was always a little too ambitious. I know they don't have to cross the border and they can play in bubbles, but still. And who knows what's going to go on with the Ontario Hockey League. And I wonder when we might see the 2021 draft. Will it be June, like usual, or is this going to be pushed back? It all depends on the length of the NHL season. They're hoping to go January 1st. I still think that's a little early, but who knows? Uh, but you know what would be cool? If you can't have fans anyway, the the thought of playing on like Lake Louise or something like that, that would give the television viewer the best view. So I, I wholeheartedly endorse that. But if they want to do a full season, there's no way the draft is in June. So I don't know what's going to happen with the NHL, but you know the 2020 draft prospects had to wait a little extra while. I wonder what's going to happen with the 2021 prospects. All right, let's get going with Craig's counsel. Scouting tips and stories from the director of scouting with TSN. The director of scouting for TSN, former GM of the Calgary Flames, and a Stanley Cup champion with the Dallas Stars. Plus, he's a sharp-dressed man with a heart of gold and a passion to match it. Craig Button. 
Craig, it is our final episode of season one. And man, I had such a good time. I can't wait for season two. And we're going to add in some video for season two. So I think there's a lot of great possibilities with this show. But we wanted to wrap up season one with kind of like a Craig's Council. And, you know, we talk a lot about scouting these players, but I kind of wanted to talk about the scouting process. And and we uh, solicited some stories from some listeners and certainly some people in the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports uh, platform. So are you ready to do a little scouting tips and story time? Sure. Absolutely, I am. All right. Uh, this is this is what I really love. You know, when we did uh, our, our Tuesday night hits on the radio, I loved uh, story time with you. So I'm really <laughs> excited. And and this is one of the first questions that uh, came in. And I think this is kind of a cool one. It says, hi, Dean, would like to hear a story from Craig regarding his worst scouting trip he can think of. A nightmare trip back in the days, maybe when he was going from uh, rink to rink in the car during the winter to view uh, junior hockey players. To, so have you had some pretty sketchy, scary trips out there on all the miles you've put on? Well, you're going to always have because of weather and whatnot, but, but but I'll tell you one that was really, really something. So I'm in Saskatoon. Bruce Hamilton, the, the owner of the Kelowna Rockets, he was scouting for the Washington Capitals at that time. So we were going to watch a game in Fort Saskatchewan. So the drive from Saskatchewan, or from Saskatoon to Fort Saskatchewan, uh, the distance, uh, what was that, about three and a half hours, right? Oh, no, it's about six hours. Is it that long? Yeah, five to six hours, yep. How, how far is it to Lloyd? Uh, about three hours, yeah. Okay, that's where we were going. Oh, Fort Sask. I don't know why I said Fort Sask. I meant Lloyd. Okay. So we're, so we're going to Lloyd. and uh, But it's it's miserable. It's a miserable, miserable winter day. Now, it's, it, it's I'm not talking about snow, but it's cold. It's like minus 35. And so... We're going to go watch this goaltender play uh, in Lloyd Minster. So, you know, we do the work, make sure, oh, yeah, he's starting because it's a team coming into Lloyd. He's starting. Don't worry. He's our goaltender. You know, again, early afternoon, Bruce makes the call again. Uh, are we going to uh, – we just want to make sure it's minus 35. It's going to be minus 45 on our way back. You know, we don't want to come if he's not playing. We're, he's the only guy we're coming to see. Don't worry. He's the guy. He's playing tonight. And Bruce goes, great. Okay. So we load up. We got our parkas. We got everything we need to get there. We get to Lloyd. We grab a bite. And then we go to the rink. So, you know, we sit there. And now the team comes out. And the goaltender that's supposed to be starting uh, doesn't, you know, he doesn't seem to be taking the, uh, uh, you know, the bulk of the warm-up. So about halfway through, Bruce goes around and uh, he confronts the coach. He says, what's going on here? You told me that, oh, he goes, I changed my mind on the bus ride. Oh. Wow. I can only tell you this. Like all you heard was Bruce <laughs> just light, lit. He lit into this poor coach, not the poor coach, the lying coach. And, 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 and I mean, just lit right into him. Everybody in the arena could hear every single thing. The kids on the ice could hear, right? Like, you came, we came here, and, you know, you do this to us. You're a liar. You'll never get a thing, right? And uh, and, and you would think that the coach would, would get some sense of, like, hey, listen, you know what? Maybe I should change my mind here and everything, right? Nope. And uh, uh, the, game, the game started. Bruce and I, we left. Oh man, that's tough. Yeah, that drive between I've driven back from the World Junior that was in Saskatoon in uh, I think 2011 to uh, Edmonton after that and when that fog rolls in and that Saskatchewan by that Saskatchewan Alberta border it uh, it can be a lot of tricky roads on that uh, highway 16 for sure. Um okay, this is a question uh, that uh, this was kind of a popular question that came in and it and it wants you to describe the process of drafting Jerome Gidla uh, and maybe who else you guys considered at that point and then the decision ultimately to trade him um, I I'd imagine both of them maybe one was easier than the other drafting him was probably easier than trading him I'm not sure uh, I would definitely say it wasn't easy drafting Jerome and I I'll tell you why there was a lockout that year so a lot of teams, a lot of teams had uh, scaled back on our on their scouting. We were not one of those teams, and 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 in Dallas at that point in time, you know, there was a lot of challenges. You know, you know, you're trying to you're trying to cut your costs, you're trying to minimize your costs, and you know, one of the things Jim Lights was our president, Bob Gainey our general manager, and Norm Green, and 
one of the things they said to us was, you know what, we you know, we, we got to make sure we don't stop. And so what we did is, is we used a lot of our air miles and a lot of our hotel points to travel. Les Jackson and I, I remember we were going over to watch a tournament in Europe and it was planes, trains, and automobiles with our points. And, you know, I, I remember we, I was living in Michigan at the time and Les is in Dallas and we meet at JFK and then we got to take a flight over on points. We're at the back. We're right at the back of the plane. Let me tell you this too, Dean. That was still when there was smoking sections on the plane, if you can believe that. Okay, so we ended up, we ended up. It's kind of funny. We ended up at the back of the plane, like right last row, right. And so this is from JFK over to to Frankfurt or Munich. I forget where we were going to, uh, flying into. But you know, we're in the smoking section. So Les, who's who's charming, and so we we just said, hey, listen, we're going to make sure that we're the that we're the nicest, most pleasant people as we try to do all the time. So, you know, we're talking to the flight attendants and everything, and, you know, we're making sure that that, that we're doing everything we can to, to make sure we can be as comfortable as possible. Well, lo and behold, what ends up happening in the smoking section that we were in, like in the, in the, in the rows, like two in front of us, right in front of us and two in front of us and just over from us was there was a, there was a right side, a middle side. And then there was the big galley. Yeah. There was, I believe, I believe, I believe it turned out to be six or 10 nuns that were traveling. So we didn't have to worry about them smoking or anything. So yeah. it was perfect. And anyway, we had a lovely trip over and everybody treated us great. But we, we took trains and planes and automobiles. I, I'm just giving you of what we were dealing. So the season starts up and, and we had a pretty good, I mean, Jerome had been a real good player, uh, you know, as a 16 year old. I mean, we had a good beat on him as a, as a player. But, you know, Jerome, because there wasn't a lot of flash to his game, the, the significant substance, it took us time not, not to assess what we, what we thought he was or what we thought he could be, but to get comfortable vis-a-vis that. You hear me talk about groups of players. You, you, you're assessing groups of players. And what you want to do is just build up your confidence. This is what this player brings. This is what that player brings. And we're looking at all the different elements of, a, uh, of, of the players and then ultimately have to make your decision. So I, I can tell you this. Sometimes you can go and watch a player like, and, and you might have six to eight viewings individually. And, and, and as a group, you have 40. We were well into the Memorial Cup. And I should say, well into the World Cup, well into the Western Hockey League playoffs, and we, and at the Memorial Cup, it, it became pretty clear that Jerome was uh, was one of the significant guys. But so was Shane Doan. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now telling you who the other players were we were considering. Terry Ryan was another player we had tremendous interest in, and so Shane goes to uh, Winnipeg ahead of us. Terry Ryan goes to Montreal ahead of us, and now. Our group, I'll tell you who the group of three players that we had at 11. It was Jerome, J.S. Jaguar, and Jay McKee. Those, mm-hmm. were the, those were the three players that we were looking at. Now, obviously, uh, we had, it's obvious what we did. We, we, we took the guy that, uh, that was ahead of, uh, in our views, J.S. and of, uh, Jay McKee. And, you know, I, you know, Jay Shiger was a, was a really good goaltender and somebody that we really liked and coveted. And if Jerome wasn't there, it, it would have been an interesting decision if we take Jay Shiger or if we took a Jay McKee, if we were taking Jay McKee, because mm-hmm. we really thought Jay was uh, the type of defenseman that would have a long career in the NHL and really help you be successful. And he was that. But, you know, when it came down to it, it, would, it took us a little bit longer to, to really get to that comfort level. Uh, with Jerome, but, you know, before us. So I would say that those, those five players were, were, were the group that we were really zeroed in on. We zeroed in on Shane, who we didn't expect to get, Terry Ryan, uh, Jerome McGinla, J.S. Shiger, and uh, Jamie Key. Now, that, that's the draft, and we were thrilled. Mm. The, the, the trade... I, I don't know if it's if if it was a case of it's never easy to to consider trading good players, but I'll tell you as we went through it, we, we knew Jerome was a was a really good player. I'd like to tell you we thought he'd be the superstar he became. I'd be lying. Sure. We didn't, but we knew he was a really good player, and we knew. I mean, I remember Les and I 
watching him early that year. It was November, and I believe we were in Tri-Cities, and we were looking, and we're going, he could play on our team right now. But we knew we were in the discussion uh, on Joe Newendike because we were looking to add uh, not only a center. We had tried to sign Ray Ferraro that summer as a center. He, he chose the New York Rangers. And uh, so we were still looking for that center to, to play uh, you know, in that one-two slot with Madonna and Joe was holding out in Calgary. So we were in discussions as we should have been. But it became, when, when the name Jerome McGinley started to come up as, as somebody that it was going to take for us to consider if we wanted to continue on in the, in the Joe Neuendijk, uh discussion, that's when it got a little bit uncomfortable for us. Not mm-hmm. uncomfortable in the sense of, 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 would you make the trade or you don't want to make the trade? But now you knew it was real. Not now you knew yeah, that, that they brought up the significant name and you can dance around it and try to offer other names. But if you want to be serious about Joe, you have to be serious about Jerome. So now it went internal. So we started to talk about our team internally and, you know, what it meant for us. Now, keep in mind that we're trying to build our team. We're looking at the, at the West Sackick and Forsberg, or in right. Colorado, Eiserman and Federoff are in Detroit. And we're going like, you know what, if we don't get a centerman here, like it doesn't matter how good Madonna is or these guys. So we recognized what we were trying to do. So then the next part was, okay, what does it mean by trading Jerome and having Joe? And what does it mean by not having, not trading uh, Jerome uh, and, and keeping him and having Joe Newen and not having Joe Newendike? And what it ultimately came down to, and, and, and I think this is where real clarity came for us, and Bob Ganey provided it. He said, listen, we know how good Jerome is, and we know that if we trade him, we're going to be disappointed about, uh, about not having Jerome for the future. But Joe Newendike gives us something that we've never had. We'll have two centermen that can match up, and you know, we'll, we'll continue to be looking for that player to try to play in that, in that, in that, in that spot in our lineup. And we have a lot of good young players. At what point in time do we start to recognize that we're going to have to do something to help our current group of players that have gone through it? Madano, Hatcher, Matt Fachuk, Letman, those players. That, and so, you, you know, we looked at it from that scope. And then, and then Bob said, and w- what's it going to mean by having – Jerome and, 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 and not having Joe Newendike. Mm-hmm. And we, we ultimately came to the decision in a real simple way that we were going to be disappointed by not having Jerome and, 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 or, or by not having Joe. And what we had to do is, is break it simply to what's best for our team at this moment in time. And what, what ultimately came to fruition was we felt that what Joe provided to our team and to our players at that particular time was greater than what Jerome could provide. And we made the trade. So Bob Bob did a tremendous job of just putting it in the context of the team and what we had done and that we would never even be able to consider a player like Joe Newendike in this scenario, unless we had drafted a player like Jerome McGinley. It wasn't easy, trust me. But when you, when you break it down to doing what's best for your team, it was, it, it became much more simpler to execute and to accept because ultimately as a manager, what you're doing is, is trying to do what's best for your team. And that's what happened. You guys went on to win uh, a Stanley cup uh, down the road in uh, 1999 with the Dallas stars. Craig button joins us on the UFFS hotline, get in the game at www.uffsports.com and join the ultimate fantasy hockey league on the ultimate fantasy our ultimate franchise fantasy sports platform and of course uh, we want to know some scouting tips because the uh, draft for the ufhl is coming up this weekend so i'm going to be doing some uh, selecting and then trish is going to be putting together the list that you give her for high level scouting and and this is a common question I think a lot of people want to know, and, and, and maybe your answer can help some people draft this weekend. What do you watch for in a skater? I, I'd imagine this is a very common question that people have. Well, it is. And, you know, uh, 
I mean, I think that anybody, I shouldn't say anybody, that's not the right way to put it. I think when you're going and assessing players, you can watch and say, okay, that player's fast and that player's quick and that player looks like, you know, he he, he needs some work on his skating or, or that player, geez, do you like his stride? You know, how much can it improve and everything that goes with it. But and, and, and I think that those are the first steps in it. I mean, it doesn't take long to go out and go, geez, Caden Gooley's a really good skater. Yeah, no kidding, sure. right? Like, you know, <laughs> and, but what, what, what you, now what you try to do is, okay, how do you use your skating to, to create advantages for yourself and, and, and to use it to, to, to help your team gain those advantages and create those opportunities. And, and, and that's where you have to delineate, like, you know, is a player just a one speed player? Can a player change speeds? Is a player agile? One of the things that I really look for in players, especially players that, and, and we're, most players haven't physically matured, but it's certainly the case with some of the smaller players, is that when you look at them, are, when they're trying to hold off a defender, do they have the leverage in the lower body to be able to do the necessary things to hold opponents at bay? Now, there's two parts to this. Seeing if they have that leverage, do they get pushed away easily? Do they lose that leverage? And do they lose it because of lack of strength or do they lose it because they don't have it? And, and that's same with defenders as well as it is for offensive players. If you don't have leverage, and I'll give you an example. I watched Seth Jarvis play. And mm-hmm. so you, you watch him get into spots. And I mean, you got to be able to play in small uh, spaces and in tight areas. But when you're watching him, you go, he gets there. And then you watch him, how he does with his leverage. And you go, they can't get on his hip. They can't bear down on him. They can't knock him down. So now you start to go, wait a second here. You know what? Once he gets stronger, that, that, that's only going to get that much better. He might not be able to hold it as well as he will when he gets older. But if you don't have that leverage and you don't have that ability, you know, people might call it edges or whatnot. But if you don't have that ability to have leverage, it's hard, hard to develop. And, and I learned that from talking to college football teams when I lived at, when I lived in Ann Arbor and, you know, talking to guys over with the University of Michigan football team. You know, they, they talked about the leverage that you need in, in tight spaces. They talked about cornerbacks. They talked about wide receivers. You don't want cuts. Right. And, and what you're really evaluating. So, you know, then you try to develop it. And so it's the same thing with a defenseman. Like people talk about a modern day defenseman. What's a modern day defenseman? And they go, well, somebody that's not as tall. I mean, like Brian Leach, like, like Chris Chelios, like Paul Coffey. Like, you know, this idea that the sub six foot defenseman didn't play in the NHL prior to this is wrong. What you need to be able to do to, to play in the NHL as a defenseman, you need to have leverage. And, a, a big, a big tall player. He needs to have leverage just as much as the smaller player. So if they don't have that leverage in their skating to defend, to be able to get underneath uh, opponents checking wise and and to hold their space and to push opponents out of their space, I don't care if you're six foot five or you're five foot eight. It doesn't matter. But if you're five foot ten and you can do that, like uh, Quinn Hughes does, it doesn't matter how tall you are. Because I've seen lots of tall players that can't do it and never will be able to do it. And despite being first-round picks or second-round picks, they don't have the leverage. So it's not about height. It's about how you get underneath and how you hold your leverage and your edges and everything like that. So I've gone into a very basic elementary part of skating uh, with it. But skating, you're not just putting a timer on them like it's speed skating. Because if that was the case, you just draft the fastest player. I say this often, Dean. I've seen a lot of players that could skate fast and you know what they do? They get nowhere fast. Yeah. You got to be able to change up speeds as we've talked about. And, uh, you know, hockey's not played in a straight line. So you can't just skate down the uh, past everybody and score. Now this is an, this is an interesting question that came in. The question is why aren't there more women hockey scouts? And I don't know if you can answer that, but I'm sure you could answer uh, the question that, there, there could be like, you know, I gender should not be preventing anybody from uh, judging hockey talent. Uh, I'm sure you will agree with me on that. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, there's no question. And, you know, I, I think there's two answers to that. Number one, you know, you, you, you look at uh, society and you look at sports specifically, you know, and like in, in the male dominated sports, you know, there wasn't entry points for women. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, as, as we know now that, you know, 
just get quality, talented people, right? Right. So, so the barriers to entry were there. Well, I think those barriers have clearly been knocked down and they'll continue uh, to be knocked down. Also, because the, the, the sport has opened up uh, to, to, to not only women playing, but women having a significant role in it, like and we can talk about as, as skating instructors, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, being involved in, in, as former players and then coaching and everything. You know, hockey is hockey. So when you when, when you're evaluating skating and you're evaluating hockey sense and you're evaluating team play and you have people that ha- have an interest in it and have had an interest in some shape or form, well, it makes makes one hundred percent sense that they can now have those opportunities to come into the sport and contribute and contribute in a significant way. And I think that the barriers to entry are, 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 are being torn down or are they eliminated totally? No. And, and that's what we always have to continue to, to make sure that we, that we create an environment where we're, you know, we talk about hockey for everyone, like hockey's mm-hmm. for everyone. Well, hockey for everyone means hockey for everyone. And so, you know, if you have a skill and you have a talent and you want to coach or you want to scout or you want to be in management or you want to be a player representative or a broadcaster, you know what? There's there's nothing that precludes anybody that has the skill uh, to being able to do the job. And, and, and that's a mindset. And that's the way everybody has to embrace it, period. End of story. Because uh, I'll tell you what. There are some terrific, and, and, and there's even more that we don't know about, but there's some terrific women in hockey that are only going to continue to rise and continue to do more. And we, as they do more, they're, they're going to be great role models for other people to want to do more. And that's how we continue to open it up. And certainly that's what we have to, and when I say we, I'm talking about as an industry, have to make sure that we do, and we have to make sure that we encourage, uh, you know, young women and and not only not only young girls to be able to play and participate, but young women to be part of uh, of the process if they if they got serious interest in being a scout or a manager or a coach or whatever they want to be. That, that hey, we're going to help you be better. We're going to help you be good. Well said. Couldn't agree more. This is an interesting one. Uh, what is the weirdest superstition an athlete you have scouted had? And, you know, I, I know you guys get to know these players a little bit in, in the interviews. Have you come across any kind of weird uh, superstitions that players have had or anything like that? So in full disclosure here, Dean, I, I'm not, I, I don't have a superstitious bone in my body. Okay. Like I don't, I just don't. I, I, I just, you know, one of the things I learned when I was younger and, uh, you know, about, you know, just because I don't doesn't mean other players don't or and, and, and you know, if it helps them be good, you know, I, I respect that. So I like I don't diminish them. But, you know, there's lots of different superstitions and you've heard about all of them. And you, you, you hear about, oh, I got to put my equipment on on the right side first or this. Mm-hmm. Or this has to be just right. or I have to have the same meal, whatever it is, whatever it takes you to get prepared. Uh, you know, I respect now to me, the most unique person I've seen. Now, I wouldn't call it superstition. I would call it competitive spirit. Ed Belfour. Hmm. He bought his own equipment. Really? Sticks, really? equipment. He worked on his equipment. He, 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 uh, he, he fixed his equipment. He sharpened his skates. You know, he was particular if somebody else was going to sharpen his skates. So because the team didn't buy his equipment, there was no sticks giving. He didn't give sticks away, blockers, nothing. It was all his. Right. And he said, no, this is my equipment. This is my tools and my trade. And I'm not letting anybody see what I do. They're not, they're not going to get a look at my sticks. They're not going to get a look at anything. And he was fastidious about it. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, that uh, with, with all the free equipment that guys get, and he would uh, buy his own stuff. Well, he, didn't want, he didn't want to be beholden. That's right. To, to the team, okay, yeah, you know, this is your equipment, or to a manufacturer, you know, I, you know, we give because it's different. It's it was different then than it is now, right? Mm-hmm. But 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 Eddie was fastidious. These are my sticks. Wow. These nice. are my skates. These are <laughs> my pads, right? And with Roman Turek, who who who's a really terrific character, 
he was our backup goaltender in Dallas. And so Eddie would get in there and he'd start working on his skates with the equipment guy. And he'd be on the sharpener and he'd be working on this and he'd be looking at that and he'd say, do this, give me that. And then, I mean, again, fastidious. I mean, that's how Eddie played the position and that's how Eddie thought. And, but Roman would go in there. He, he, he inevitably Roman, he'd let a bit, little bit of time uh, pass and then he would go in and, poke fun at the equipment guys and, Hey, can you do this? And can you fix this? And I have a hangnail here and it got to be, it got to be pretty funny. And you know what Roman recognized, which I thought was fantastic is he knew how to lighten the mood, right? Mm -hmm. Because Eddie was always serious. He was serious about his trade. He was serious about winning. Eddie had zero interest in fiddling with the dials and just participating. Eddie had every interest in, I'm here to play. I'm here to be the best I can be. I'm going to give myself every advantage and everybody else better be like that too. I remember one training camp, uh, you know, and we're in groups of whatever, three different groups or four groups and we split them up and we play and everything. Uh, we're, we're in the, we're in the weight room the one day and Eddie was in there. And he grabs me, just grabs me. He goes, Hey, listen, you, you, you got to get some of these young kids to, to work harder. They're, they don't know how to work. Like they're, they're, they're not working. I'm watching because we used to take, we used to take our NHL players, uh, our, our, our group of minor league prospects and then younger players and, and mix them all together so that they didn't feel isolated and everybody was together. So Eddie would be in these training groups with these younger players. Right. And he grabbed me. He said, Listen, it's not good enough. They got to be better. They, <laughs> you're going to have to help them be better. Like that. I'm telling he Eddie missed nothing. Let me just tell you this. Eddie missed nothing yeah a guy that played uh high school hockey in canada and ended up winning a stanley cup it uh that doesn't often happen uh certainly uh, uh in the in the manitoba area for sure uh, speaking hall, of hall goalies, of fame dean he's yeah. he's in the hall of fame like i mean yeah. and, and undrafted free yeah. unbelievable so speaking of goalies um what do you think of teams having specific goalie scouts we have defensemen coaches we have goalie coaches do we need goalie scouts, do you think? Well, there are goalie scouts. And you know what? I, I worked with one of the best overall scouts uh, that, that I believe, you know, in, in anywhere in scouting. And, and he knew and he knew goaltending inside out. And that's Tim Bernhardt. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, Tim was working with NHL Central Scouting as, their, as, as a scout and specifically with the goaltenders. And I learned as much. I, I learned what I know about goaltending. I, I've learned from three people. Tim Bernhardt, Dave Pryor, and well, I should say Warren Stralo to a great extent too, mm -hmm. who worked with my dad in Washington, right. and, and Ricky Saint Croix, uh, you know, who's with the Winnipeg Jets, and you know, right. but Tim Bernhardt, I mean, like you, you know, he always used to tell us, here's what you need to watch for in evaluating goaltenders. You're never going to have the feel for what it means to be a goaltender, but don't tell me you can't scout them. And he would help us, like, and I have great confidence in going and evaluating goaltenders. Does that mean that I understand what it means to be a goaltender or to feel? No, I, I never will. But he he instilled that those lessons in me and worked with me where I felt really comfortable and gave me so many lessons on it. So when when you're talking about a technical position and you're you're talking about young goaltenders that need development time technically, I, I really believe that it, it it's not just in scouting; it's also in development mm -hmm. and. You know, Major League Baseball, you know, you, you, you have pitching coaches. You don't have a shortstop coach because the shortstop position is different than, than the pitching position. And I feel that goaltending is, is, is so similar to, to pitching in Major League Baseball. You can throw and you can be athletic, but you got to learn how to pitch. I feel the same way about goaltenders. You, you, you can be quick and you can be competitive, but you got to learn how to goaltend. And I think that... Uh, Coaches, uh, development coaches that know, understand how, 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 you know, what can be developed really are important in the evaluation process because it's great to say that we think that goalie's good. But if you're the person working with him and you say, listen, I think he's got this flaw and I think he's got this flaw and I, I don't think that can be fixed. We can manage it to a certain degree. But and, and so I think that when you talk about scouting goaltenders specifically, it's a technical position. It's a, it's a technical spot. And I think that absolutely somebody that understands uh, goaltending and scouting it and, and then understanding the development process 
is instrumental to to teams uh, w- w- when you're in the when you're scouting uh, all goaltenders. I'm sure every NHL team has at least one former goalie on their scouting staff, right? Like I, when you just look at all the scouts, goaltenders become some of the best analysts because they get to see the game develop. And and you know, I'm sure every team has at least one former goalie that they can turn to. Oh yeah, I mean, and and and, and I'll be. I mean, most teams have multiple people yeah. in the goalie development system from, from evaluation to development, whether you're working with the NHL goaltender, you're working with the minor league goaltender uh, or your junior goaltender, or your, your prospect goaltenders. I mean, that's the, that's the case and that's what you have to have. So it, it, again, I'm going to go back to baseball. It's no different than baseball. They, they, they have pitching coaches at the A level, the double A level, the triple A level, and it's different than than it is at the major league level because one part of it is development. Another part of it is, is the technical adjustments you need to make. That's the NHL level. And so you, you, it's not just one person. You, you need multiple people in, in those roles. And to your point, yes. Yeah. You, you, I, I, I can't think of a team that, that doesn't have uh, a goal, te- a, a former goaltender on their scouting staff. I, I just can't think of one. Um, this is an interesting one. Is there a player that you argued the most for to draft but didn't get him? You know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots, Craig, but is there one guy that stands out that at the draft table you're fought for and and, and you, you're like the one that got away maybe? Well, you know, I can only tell you this. Uh, from my time scouting when I started, I, I can't remember arguments. I mean, we, we used to have weekly conference calls to go through the players and go through our list. We didn't make a list at Christmas time. We, we, we had a list that we started at the beginning of the season and we, we developed it and worked with it all the time. So mm-hmm. we go into a game and we go, here's our list. Okay. You know, this player's here. Is that too high? I just saw this player. He might be better. So like, honestly, uh, Dean, you know, you hear about all the, the, about all these arguments at the draft table and fist pounding. And I know what's happened. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, I was never part of that. Never part of it. Never. We, 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 that wasn't how we operate. But, but I will tell you the one uh, that, that got away. And there's always players that you love that you wish you got. Uh, Tuomo Rutu. Uh, he mm-hmm. went ninth. We picked 11th in Calgary. I mean, I was hoping and hoping that we could. I loved him. I loved him. And, you know, and, and, and our group loved him. You know, so he was one player. But I'll take you back to the 1998 draft. Okay. The Colorado Avalanche had four picks. They, they they tried to corner the market on first round picks because they really wanted to get after Vincent LeCavalier. Pierre Lacroix was the manager in Colorado. So we all knew about LeCavalier, but they had four first round draft picks. Anyway, that year, we, uh, you know, we're scouting, we're scouting. So Quebec Ramparts had two players, two, two good players, two good prospects, Eric Schwenard and Simon Gagne. Mm-hmm. And Simon Gagne uh, was the player that interested us a lot more. Uh, on Quebec. So as we were going on and we're watching them and watching them and watching them, and we really liked them. And we got to a point where we started to say, we're not watching them in Quebec City anymore. We'll watch them in Chicoutimi or Val d'Or or Rouen Aranda because we didn't want to tip off anything that we were doing uh, uh, with respect to Simo Gagne, Gagne that, we w- that we would be interested in this player. You don't want to tip anybody off because you start to show up at the same rink. And, you know, so we wanted to try to stay as much under the radar as we could, knowing that you can't completely stay under the radar. So now we, we spend time with Simo and this left winger, he's exactly what we want. I mean, and we love him. Like when I say love him, it's, it's unanimous. We love him. So now the draft unfolds. And so Colorado's looking to trade back and they're trying to maneuver with some of their picks. And so Bob Gainey says to us, he goes, uh, you know what, why don't we trade up? We can get, ah, we don't have to trade up. We, we got this guy. I think we we're picking like 27th or 28th or 20, somewhere around there. Ah, we don't have to do that. So another call comes in, you know, geez, you guys, like you really like them. Like, why don't we just take him? Like, you know, he's a, he's a perfect fit. You're unanimous on him. Ah, we knew better. We're, we're, we're like the five-year-old kid that knows better than your parents, right? And yeah. Bob is patient with us and everything, right? And so, and, 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 you know, we were to the point, we were blinded by our own conviction that we were going to get him at that point in time. And so here we are doing all this work, trying to be under the radar, and yet 
we're, we, we did see the forest for the trees. The Philadelphia Flyers take them at, I don't know, 22 or 23. 22. Yeah. 22. And I remember, I remember just dropping my head. I remember just dropping my head and just going, oh. And, and, and Simone Nolay, who was the Flyers chief scout at the time, had played with Simone Gagne's father. Oh. And oh. I totally missed it. Like, you know, didn't see the forest for the trees. So, you know, th- there's other players you go, oh, I like and everything. But that was a player where, you know, blinded by the light, arrogant, too, too convinced of your own convictions. And that was the guy that, you know, and as time showed, I mean, I mean, Simo was a, was a terrific player. And, mm-hmm. but it, the, the point I'm trying to illustrate is on, on a, it, we didn't, we didn't underestimate Simo uh, Gagne. We had him pegged. We loved him. And we made a huge mistake in not getting them. Well, it's it's the shows that if you like somebody, just go get them, go take them, right? Don't wait. Well, exactly, and 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 and, and there's like I said, it was unanimous. There, yeah. we, we loved him. We, like he was a left winger that could skate. That could we we everything about him we loved. And yep, our own our own. And and, and when I say our, I mean like I mean I, I was running the draft and you know doing it. I mean. Yeah. See the forest oh. for the trees. Lessons learned, right? All right, let's wrap up with this one. It's a, it's a bit of a longer one, so uh, stay with me. It says, "How much do you feel a player getting into the right system with a team makes a difference in how they turn out as a player?" Basically, I always hear of guys saying, "Quote: My favorite team should have drafted this guy or that guy after they turn out elsewhere." But in reality, um, how likely do you feel they would have turned out the same way drafted by a, a different team? Do you, do you understand that? The whole, my guy, this guy would have turned out perfect in our system. It's not, doesn't, it's not always a straight line, right? It never is. And so p- part of being in the right system is also about that team understanding what the development process is Yes, and, and, and not putting players into positions uh, before they're ready to assume those positions. You've heard me uh, say often about uh, players have to make sure that they're ready to play in the NHL and contribute at the NHL level. Because if you're not, it becomes a case of treading water and the NHL will chew you up and spit you out like nothing. So I'm going to give you an example of that. Danny Cleary, who was uh, a high first round draft pick to the Chicago Blackhawks and a, and a really, really good player. So he ends up being drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks. They want him to, to, to do things that perhaps, you know, he wasn't great at, but he, he was going to work at it. Didn't work out. And then he got traded. And, you know, Glenn Sather was always very shrewd in acquiring former, first, not former, because you're always a first-round draft pick, but mm-hmm. a, a first-round draft pick that didn't work out. So now he goes to Edmonton, didn't work there. So now he ends up in Arizona with the Phoenix Coyotes. It didn't work there either. So what ultimately ends up happening with Danny Cleary is that Danny Cleary now, you know, pushed to the NHL in my view too soon, being asked to do things that really weren't uh, to his strengths in his game. Now he ends up right after the lockout in 0405, ends up with the Detroit Red Wings. And Danny starts playing and he starts playing for uh, Detroit and, they're encouraging him, hey, Danny, you, you skate, you make plays with the puck, you're a good thinker, do those things. And Danny told me that he said, when you're younger, you just want to get to the NHL, and you do whatever they ask you to do. Yeah. And, you know, and he said, it wasn't until I got to Detroit that they asked me to do what I do, that, that I always did well. And he said, I, I got comfortable, and, I, and, and now I just played my game. He goes, but... He, goes, he wasn't blaming anybody, but he said that was the first place where they just said, be who you are. And what happened to Danny Cleary from that point on? <laughs> yeah, started winning cups. Well, but, but, but you, I, I've used the Curtis Lazar example. And mm-hmm. I love Curtis. And I, I, I've watched Curtis play since he was 15 years of age. And I love him. And so he's a first-round draft pick to the, to the Edmonton or to the Ottawa Senators. But let's just look at Curtis. Curtis came in to the Western Hockey League as a high pick, as, as one of Canada's very best 1975-born players. Yes. 16 years old, has a pretty solid year. 
17 year, year, you know, good year, like good years, building on everything that he was. So now he comes back that next year and, and they win the Memorial Cup. And he, I believe he had 40 goals or 41 goals, just around 40 goals. Now he's trending right to where you want him to be, right? And, and then what did the Ottawa Senators do? They take him and they put him in the NHL at 19. Mm -hmm. And so Curtis just, Curtis is competitive. He's going to do whatever he can to help the team. Well, now he is doing whatever he can do to help the team as a third, fourth line player. So, so now he plays that year. He goes to the World Junior. They win the gold in Toronto in 2015. He was the captain. He was terrific. But he goes back to Ottawa. So then what ends up happening? So now, so now he's in this role, and now he's, he doesn't have the opportunity to, to build on the offensive game. Mm -hmm. Now as a 20-year-old, now he's getting more entrenched into a third, fourth-line role. Now he's two years removed from scoring. You remember what happened to him after his second year? Yeah, he got released, didn't he? No, they sent him to the minors to tell him to go work to the, to try to find his offensive game. Right. And then he got traded to the yeah. Calgary Flames. Sorry, traded. That's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but here's this terrific offensive player that you took out of his offensive prowess, outside of his offensive strengths, told him to be a checker. He did exactly what you asked him to do, and then you were disappointed because he wasn't scoring. Mm -hmm. That was a failure on the organization's part. Yeah, and that happens more more often than than you know, you know you can say oh they didn't draft well. Well, development is just as important as the draft. The draft is just the first step, Craig. Is it not? Yeah, well, no question. So what you're doing in the draft is you're identifying talent, but then the key part after you draft the player is understanding the developmental steps, the right. the process, and 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 that requires patience, and that requires understanding what, where you got to put players and allow players. So you know I mentioned Danny Cleary. Like Danny Cleary was always a good player, but once he got, and then there's maturity that goes to it and then the understanding. But I mean, when you take players and you put them into a spot, that, like I know Curtis, Curtis is going to do everything he can to, to help the NHL team. But now they're disappointed because he's not scoring. Well, you took him out of the opportunity to develop that scoring. And mm -hmm. it becomes a problem. We used to tell players when we drafted them, or we used to meet with all, like lots of players. And, and spend time with them. We'd take, talk, have lunch or dinner, spend time with their families, and, and, and express to them what we were going to do. I remember when we drafted Brendan Morrow. We drafted him in the first round. Now, now Portland had a really good team. They had lots of yeah. good players. And, but we told Brendan, Brendan, here, here's what's going to happen if, we, if, we, if you get drafted by Dallas, just so we're up front with you. You're going to come to training camp. Like development camps were a little bit different at that time, so I don't I don't exactly remember how our development camp worked. I said, but we're going to have that. Then you're going to come to training camp, and you're going to be there for seven days, and then we're sending you back to junior. You're not playing any exhibition games. Uh, you, you're going to participate. We're going to help, and we want you to start the season and be entrenched with the team that you're going to be playing with during that year. We also told them. We said. There might be players on your team in Portland that might play exhibition games that are going to be still with their NHL team long after you've been returned to junior. We told them we don't care. We yeah. don't care about them. And you might be disappointed. and That's understandable. And we get it. You want to get an exhibition game or two in. We get it. But you're not going to get it. Just so you know, that is exactly what's going to happen. And... So, like all young players, they have, oh, I'm going to do everything I can to show them that I can play in the NHL this year. So, at the end of the, the seven days when he was going back, Les Jackson and myself sit down with uh, Brendan, Tim Bernhardt, and we sit down with Brendan, and we're telling him, okay, here's where we're at. And, and so, Brendan, he's kind of like, we go, how do you feel? He goes, well, when you told me what you were going to do before you drafted me, I kind of said, oh, okay, like that's, you know, that kind of bothers me. And then I said, I'll show them. He said, but when I got my ticket and I saw the return date, there was already a return date on it. It wasn't a one-way ticket. He said, <laughs> they're serious. <laughs> I said, all we're trying to do is help you be the best player you can be. And, yeah. a lot, and a lot, I, I'm not suggesting that there's any NHL team that doesn't do that. But if you don't understand 
the developmental cycles and the developmental steps necessary to help players that you really believe highly in, that you've drafted high, and I, I call first three rounds high draft picks, then you're going to make mistakes. And you're going to have players not achieve the level of success that you thought that they could achieve. And a lot of times, and, and I'll be straightforward there, in too many of the cases, mm-hmm. in, 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 in over 50% of the cases, it's not the player's fault. It's the team's fault. 100%. Uh, great stuff, Craig. Uh, wrapping up season one with some great, great stories and some scouting tips. Uh, can't wait to, to get into next week, season two. We'll add some video so we'll be able to see each other and we'll take a kind of just a, a general overview of the 2021 draft next week. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been an awesome season one and I can't wait for season two. Same with me, Dean. You're terrific and it's always a great amount of fun to spend this time with you. This is a serious message. Craig Button joins us on the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports Hotline. Become a scout and make money while providing prospects to the Ultimate Franchise Hockey League. What'd you talk about, mister? Pay that man his money. I'm your huckleberry. Check out the details at www.uffsports.com. It's serious. I like it a lot. I said we got a winner. UFFS, you own the game. And that's going to wrap things up for this week and for this season big thanks to craig button of tsn of course for joining us each and every week giving us his passion his knowledge and this week some really good stories and we've got some that we couldn't get to Uh, we had a lot of questions thank you so much to everybody for uh, sending in those questions we'll try to get to some more of them we'll try to do this uh, at least twice next year um once during the season and maybe once at the uh, end of the season as well hope you enjoyed the show if you did please subscribe leave us a review let us know what you think of the show and uh, we're always looking for constructive criticism and nice feedback if you'd like to be a part of the show as an advertiser for season two hit me up tracking the draft at gmail.com and for all your podcast needs check out podcastalley.ca. I have three other shows that you may be interested. This has been Tracking the Draft with Craig Button. My name is Dean Millard, and the stars of tomorrow... ...are discovered here. Thank you so much for listening this season. We'll talk to you on Season 2 next week.